Paul Lindley is billed by headline writers as a successful entrepreneur, and he is that, but far more. His business, and more recently his charity, campaigning work and books, revolve around a profound, simple philosophy. The world looks different through the eyes of a child. Take a childlike view of things, he says, and you'll immediately invoke some of the attributes that are key to success, like being tenacious, single-minded, creative, and honest. Uh, hi, Paul, and thank you very much for talking to us. Hi, Richard. Thank you. That's a unique um, introduction, um, one I very much appreciate, uh, as long as your listeners uh, see childlike as something very different to childish. Uh, very, very different. Let's let's go with the imagination. Quite. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, but if, if firstly, Paul, you established a food brand, Ella's Kitchen, which, which most people will know, uh, back in 2006. And it achieved a million pound turnover in year one. It created your fortune. You sold the business in 2013 and, and have stayed on for several years. But now most of your time goes on charitable and campaigning work. You're a passionate believer in the power of business to do good for society. And in, in, in the same vein as that childlike theme, your focus really is on children and on the future. And we're going to come back to that uh, and to your books. But let's start, if I may, with the business itself. Tell us about the founding of Ella's Kitchen and most importantly, why was it such a success? Okay, thank you. Well, the founding, um, so Ella is my daughter. And I guess the, the, the founding, the idea that triggered it all was from two things that came together in my life at the same time. One is that I'd had uh, my baby Ella and uh, as a family, we were we were weaning her and um, she was great for a while and then stopped eating. And, and I just had to use silliness and mess and games to try and make her laugh, to pop, open her mouth, to pop the food in. And I sort of copped on that, that if you can make fun uh, food fun for uh, children and babies, um, then they'll, they'll like it. Um, and the second thing in my life was uh, I was working at Nickelodeon where I was deputy managing director. And sitting at my desk there, I could see that television was great, but it was being blamed for a lot of uh, poor health with children and that they weren't going outside, they were watching television and they were watching bad ads. So um, I could see that our children's health was, was, uh, was declining and, and, and sort of bringing the two things together, I'd worked out that if you made food fun for kids, they'd like it. If you could make it healthy for parents and healthy, then they'd or everyone would like it, and that's what I set off to do. I worked out that there was a gap in the market, no one else was doing that, uh, and set out to, to create my own brand, um, and I took two years after leaving my job uh, to find Ellis Kitchen on the supermarket shelves for the first time. And so actually that wasn't that wasn't really about this thing that, that I guess came later, which was this uh, child's view of the world then. That was just a you spotted a gap in the market. Yeah, I spotted a gap in the market and then I had to work out how do we get to the market and how do we make it different. And at that time, um, all baby food was very functional. It was purely designed to attract a parent, the mother um, at that time completely, uh, into the store. Uh, it was seen as a lost leader by supermarkets. So, um, and it hadn't, and consequently no one was investing in it. So it hadn't evolved for two generations. It was in glass jars. It was pretty functional. It was all pretty much orange and it had uh, very old fashioned um, recipes, I guess. So what I thought of was appeal to the child, appeal to the baby, think like that baby will think, think like a toddler will think um, and uh, make it really appealing to them. 
make it so that it attracted all of their senses. It was visually stimulating, it tasted great, smelled like great, and, and was tactile. So innovated in so many different areas, innovated in the packaging, um, away from the glass jars, something that was much more tactile and, and, and helpful for the parents uh, in a pouch, uh, made it bright colors, put together unusual things in recipes that perhaps parents wouldn't do at home, but work. Uh, and, uh, and were healthy and good, so mixing fruits and vegetables together, for example, and using some unusual fruits and vegetables. Um, and then marketing in a very different way, marketing appealing to the child in the, the parent and um, making the whole stressful uh, task of weaning um, more, 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 more fun and more human, but without taking the, the seriousness of the nutrition and the routine uh, away from it. So really, you know, revolutionized um, baby food to the extent that we launched uh, with products that were 50% more expensive than the glass jars and everything else that was around it on the shelf. And, you know, as you just said in the introduction, made a million pounds turnover in the first year and double that turnover for each of the first seven years of, of its existence. Um, so, you know, the, the, the the price wasn't an issue to the consumer because the product was different. It was of a quality um, and it was a, a resonance to, to their lives. Um, and, um, and so really found that market uh, or that gap in the market uh, by appealing to the, the toddler from the very beginning and having a mission that was around the toddler's development, and the, the baby's development, um, so that they grew up um, finding food fun and um, helping them develop a healthy relationship through throughout their lives. So, and, and, we'll focus on so that while from the beginning. That I mean, that amazing growth suggests that you were dead right in spotting the opportunity. And you know, because we're going to talk beyond the Ellis Kitchen, I'm, I'm I'm keen to sort of ask really, apart from that immediate commercial success and dramatic as it was, what were you learning as as the business grew? What yeah. were you how was it beginning to to develop into these other things that your life has wound sure. out? To? Well, I think um, I think my learning from that were two broad things that everything else in my life subsequent to that has 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 hooked onto, um, and then perhaps I can just explain a couple of things why I also think that Ella's you know was so successful and became the biggest baby food company in this country um, so so quickly uh, and in many places around the world as well. So the, the broad stuff around what I've learned from that experience um, uh, are, are two things. Uh, one is um, people matter. <laughs> people matter to business, people matter in life. If you focus on the people rather than the profit, the profit will come. Um, you know, you can have the best business plan in the world, but you need people to deliver the business plan. You need people to invest in you. You need people to work with you and you need people to buy from you. So by humanizing business, by putting them right at the center and understanding motivations and behavior, you'll understand the, econo or the economics will follow. So I, I sort of think in business, psychology beats economics, people beat strategies in, in a way because economics and strategies are are numbers and words on pieces of paper, and you need the humanness and the innovation and the motivation and, 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 and kind of grab, understand people's behaviors to, to make it work. And that applies to, you know, obviously marketing uh, and um, 
uh, and things like trust, um, but but also to understand you know how the finances work and why why the price points right or you know why the capital investment that we, we made it, it works. You need to understand. I, I mean, you've been just, sorry to interrupt you there, but you you had had a commercial life before Ellis Kitchen. You'd yes. been an accountant and you'd worked at Nickelodeon, as you said. What was it about Ella's Kitchen that made you see those things in, in ways that perhaps you hadn't in your previous careers? Well, I was in the privileged position of creating the business in my image, if you like. So I could set the, uh, the values, the, the brand, the uh, culture, um, all of which um, I intuitively thought were the most important things in a business, but had never been in a position to call the shots, if you like, before and set, set all those things. So, um, and, you know, as I saw they were working, you know, I hugely invested in, and, and hugely um, valued uh, the, 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 the people, um, really. And, and so, you know, very early on, I think we had about 15 people. We got a what, what other organisations would call an HR department. What we called was keeping people happy team. Um, but, um, and, and really understood the, the reason why someone wanted to work for Ellers, how they saw reward, how they developed themselves, um, and ultimately they were happier at work, they stayed longer, and they helped deliver the mission of the company because they thought about uh, that mission and their involvement with the company beyond the hours of nine to five or whatever, however they worked. So people is, is one of the things that I learned. And then the second thing was a, a very toddler-like thing, actually, which is to ask the question, why, all the time? Uh, or, as toddlers do, why not? Um, and if you ask why to everything in life, I think, or, or better still, as I say, why not, you, you sort of get to your mission and you get to what your purpose is if you question things all the time. Question, you know, ask questions and then question the answers. Um, because then you find the, the, you know, the little angles, the 1% chance, the, the sort of things that other people haven't delved deep enough to look at and haven't spotted the opportunity. Um, and they also question that whether you're going down the right road or not um, and, um, and allow you the opportunity to sort of change direction and to, to, to keep um, evolving uh, and, and keep relevant. Um, so I, you know, that's a philosophy of mine in life to constantly question why of anything, um, but, and then to keep people right at the heart of things. So they're, they're the two things that I've taken on to my other work and, and that I, you know, colour my, my view of life. Um, but let's go back to Ellis. Why you asked um, yeah. at the beginning about why Ellis was successful. And, and yes, we, you know, took that high risk of different kind of packaging, different kind of recipes, different price point, different kind of marketing. Um, a very different company, but I think the, 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 the few things that really I've learned from that experience that I've seen, you know, try to take to other businesses, um, and, and I think uh, are how the economy ultimately works, are, are perhaps, you know, yes, you need a business plan, and that needs to work, and it needs to be relevant, and you need to have a, find a market, and you need to find a gap in that market, and there needs to be a market in that gap, and those kind of common uh, like MBA type, you know, you've got to be, be, be um, smart around your plans. But they, they will just send a piece of paper unless you take the next three or four things I'm going to say um, uh, to heart and deliver on them. First of all, um, setting values right at the heart of the company. Build your business around values. Work out at the very beginning what they are, 
how you're going to interpret them and hold yourself accountable to them. Because if you set your values up at the beginning, you will have a consistency of decision-making right the way through your business. Those easy days when it's an easy decision, that's no problem. When it's a really hard decision, you've really got to delve deep and to understand what what is right and wrong for you because it needs to be consistent with why. I'm hearing that and and I I get it. But what does that mean in practice? I think some people listening to this might be curious. You're growing this business very fast. Some of your customers are huge retailers, you know, notorious for kind of cutthroat treatment of suppliers. In practice, was it that easy actually to ask these difficult questions and stick to your values? Yes. Because what's the point otherwise? So we turned down a major retailer for three years in a row, which would have grown our revenues, would have grown them at a margin that we couldn't sustain. So we would have been hoping to um, you know, increase the volume to reduce the uh, individual price. So, um, and that was hope. Um, so we said, um, and we didn't like the way that we were um, expected to fund and to position ourselves within their store which wasn't mm. why we started so we turned them down and you know eventually they 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 came and we did a deal that we worked for us um in recruiting people and more importantly keeping the team you know in in um uh divesting of people whose values didn't fit with us but we um, may have had in the team that those difficult decisions around um, making sure that the team is right, pulling together as one, is united, um, you know, in in their goals together. And when there's you know one bad egg in a team of twenty, that's very different to one bad egg in a team of two hundred. Um, and you've got to act on on those things. So so being able to refer back to your values, I don't I don't think it's difficult. I think it causes difficult decisions, and you know it's easy to duck out of it uh, for the quick buck or for just pushing the problem down the road. Um, but if you're serious about wanting a sustainable long-term business, um, and um, you know, I, I put this into sort of your world a little bit with, with investments and, and sort of, you know, if you're looking for a quick buck and you don't really care what you invest in, then, you know, don't worry about the industries and the sort of the, the ethics and things of the companies you're involved with, you, 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 you live with yourself as to whether you're happy with that. But, you know, if you, if you think that um, it's important what the companies that you do, how they operate and what their values are, um, then, you know, I think most people want to align with organizations and investments and, and, and something that's happening in the world that aligns with their values. And um, yeah. if that happens when we pick the smoothie off the shelf on the supermarket because we believe in the company that's got the one with the little woolly hat on, on top and, and is saying they do something beyond selling smoothies to the world, then why shouldn't we do that when we invest in our pensions or uh, yeah. individual investments? And, and um, so I'm optimistic that the world goes, back, goes further yeah. towards putting values into Very. decisions. Very interesting, and we can, and I know we'll we'll hopefully get to that a bit, bit more. But just perhaps, you know, when you when you look back over Ella's Kitchen and your your kind of um, withdrawal from it in the past, when you think about what constitutes success generally in the creation of a business, it's, mm. it is then so much more than that commercial success and market share and so on. It is these 
these other elements that you've touched on like well, I think they all drive to that so I was talking about values I could talk about you know be obsessed by your customer and listen to them and don't tell them what they want listen to what they want and and have mechanisms within your organization so you can respond to changes that they that, that, that they're asking for have an awesome team praise them deliver you know deliver what they want out of their career and their work their job help them be connected help them you know be autonomous within the company and, and make decisions themselves empower them um, help them master things and, and, and learn from by themselves and, and, and ensure that you know they've got the right mindset um, or do you employ people with the right mindset um, to, to work with teamwork like that and I would say that the, the sort of final thing is Always, always, always um, find ways to just deepen that authenticity that you stand for something beyond making profit um, and providing something as cheaply as possible um, to sell as much as possible. Be authentic because people believe in in that and, and if uh, who buy from you and it, that shines through. And crucially for any business that's a brand, a consumer brand, you've got to get that trust. And that kind of, as I was talking about people earlier, Trust is fundamental to business. Um, it's, it, it can take a very long time to build up and it can take you know, seconds, one decision to lose and, and you never get that back. So that consistency of under, being underpinned by values to build that trust. But, you know, we trust is uniquely human and it's so difficult to define that, that you know, my, my experience and my advice to other starting businesses or in leadership of businesses is, is really to, to, to spend so much time working out how you build that trust with authenticity and how you protect yourself from it being broken by, you know, unwise or random decisions that, that reflect badly, um, you know, and, 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 and then you're on the back foot all, all the time. So, and, you know, all of those things I talk about are about human beings at the centre of business. And it's not about the, the profitability as the centre thing. That comes when you... When you, when, you, when you put people at the heart. And there's so much, there's so much I still wanted to, to talk about on that, but just one quick question then. Looking, it's quite a long time ago now that Ellis Kitchen was founded. Do you think um, the, the kind of public and consumers value that sense of authenticity more now than then? What's changed in the marketplace? Is there more cynicism? Is there more willingness to, to look look deeper into how our business is run? Um, I, I don't think human beings have changed in that those 20 years. I think the opportunities for them to look under the covers and ask questions and ask why and, and sort of find out more information. I think consumers are much more empowered. The balance of power has moved from, you know, the, the, the business and the, the leadership within business to uh, you know, wider within the business, I think employees have, a, 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 for the best run companies, have a better say or bigger say um, in how the companies run. But then to the outside, to the consumers, the consumers have more power because, you know, uh, the technology advances sort of means that, um, uh, you know, greenwashing, for example, is very difficult now. Uh, transparency is uh, is what consumers expect. Um you know, a chief executive can be emailed as they could 20 years ago, but the whole social media public conversations can happen now that the, the chief executive can't duck or is ill-advised to duck if, it, if it's raging. Um, and, um, you know, so must respond. And, you know, that response ought to be thought through. And if that response is built on, well, here are our values and this is what we've set up, 
then you know that that is that's a very defendable position. So to, to answer your question, I think the 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 um, uh, technology culture and in some ways legislation has all moved the balance of power over to the consumer. Um, and um, uh, uh, and so businesses have had to respond and are much better because yeah. they respond. Uh, and and perhaps because some of the crises that the world faces in general are so much more demanding of a response yeah, yes. than in the past. A absolutely. And then, you know, another angle to this is, is, is um, employees and teams. So, you know, if you are a business that wants to retain or employ the brightest and the best and, and, and the people who you think will move your company the furthest and keep them with you for longest, you've got to treat them as human beings. You've got to understand their motivations for working for you. You've got, you know, the, the brightest young people now coming out of university are going to be able to challenge companies in a way that they weren't being able to challenge before at interview stage to say, what are your values? Okay, how do you have, okay, that works. Now show me please how they are um, played out every day. Um, how, yeah. how do you actually do this? Because these are my values and I want to work for a company that, that, that overlaps with that. And, I, and, and the companies that don't, you know, will fall off the FTSE 100 list and, or will, you know, will struggle. And the companies that do will attract those talents increasingly. Um, and so the power shift there, I believe, has moved as well over the last 20 years. I mean, the, this, in a way, is is a, a part, of, I think, of what, what I want to ask you about next, which was that period post Ella's Kitchen where you were thinking about and finding new ways to use your skills and kind of uh, promote your vision for how business could work better in society, what success commercially could could deliver to society. Tell us a bit more about that. that I, I think I thought, um, I think, well, I know I thought I was in this incredibly privileged position that I had no... Um, no sense was coming. It wasn't part of the overall plan to say, okay, now in my mid forties, I'm in a position where I don't need to work again financially, uh, but emotionally and intellectually, uh, and as a human being spiritually, um, I absolutely did. And but I hadn't. Re I spent so much time over sort of uh, eight nine years um, defining what values of this kitchen were, what its brand stood for, who it was, why it existed, what its purpose was. And I thought, my goodness, I need to do that for myself now to make sure that I am true to myself and I can do the things that I want to do, given that I'm in this privileged position and I do feel a, 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 a responsibility as well as a, um, a sense of um, myself, a sense of well-being, um, to, to use the experiences and the wealth and the ideas and the networks that I have to do something further. Um, and and my, to my passions or my thoughts were in two, trying to bring together two different things. One was around using the incredible power of entrepreneurship um, to um, places outside the for-profit business world. You know, entrepreneurs are born out of businesses, but, you know, there should be entrepreneurial, more entrepreneurial thinking in public policy and education and charities, social enterprises, civic society. You know, there are untold problems and challenges in all of those spaces and 
you know, the innovation and the connections and the creativity that, that entrepreneurs often bring aren't really embedded in the cultures of those other spaces. Um, so I was in, really interested in, 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 in sort of trying to bring over any skills that I might have or any networks that I might have to be able to address problems in those other spaces. Um, and then the other, the other thing really was really around children's well-being and their welfare and their rights uh, and helping more children thrive. Before, uh, before we get, sorry to interrupt there, but before we move on to, on to the, the children focus, just why, what is it that has meant that some aspects of the economy do not have that, why, why don't they have that entrepreneurial culture? Of the economy or of society? Of the economy, you talk there about public policy, third sector, I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, um, I think it is um, cultural in many respects. For, so, for example, in public policy, you know, uh, a government um, uh, has the balance, has the culture of thinking that, you know, it is in this incredibly serious position of it's got public money and it needs to be accountable for spending that public money well, uh, obviously. But by spending it on something that doesn't work necessarily is seen as we're not going to take that risk. Whereas we're never going to solve problems if we keep doing the same thing again and again, which tends to happen because they're worried about spending something and it's not going to work and they're going to be seen as not. But whereas in private business, in an entrepreneurial setting, you you use that as a positive. You say, okay, that didn't work. What have I learned? How am I going to adapt? How am I going to pivot? How am I going to do it again differently? You know, James Dyson had something like 1,500 goes at getting his patent right for his, um, his vacuum cleaner. Um, J.K. Rowling, as her own little business of, of, of being an author, you know, sent Harry Potter off to dozens of publishers before she, she got that. So the... the, 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 the the idea that you can fail in public life um, is seen as something that just can't be done. Yeah, it's fundamentally human. You, I, and everyone listening to this fail more times today than the things that we do, then we'll succeed at. But each time we'll learn and adapt. If we take my, my heroes, the toddlers, you know, each one of us... Yes, Tell us a little bit as you as you finish articulating that. Just um, mention your book for those who haven't come across it. Um, little wins, the, the huge power of thinking like a toddler. Just tell us. I think you were going to talk about one of the kind of core yeah. ideas in that. Yeah. Well, that book was really a, a, a culmination a few years after I sold Ellis of my reflections on that Ellis Kitchen journey and why it was successful, but also what I've learned around um, how incredible. Um, toddlers are, how they're the best human beings. And the wonderful thing is everyone who would read that book was once a toddler. And therefore, this could speak to things that everybody, all of us, went through and learnt and physiologically developed, psychologically developed um, at that age um, that uh, we tend not to use um, as much as we should in adulthood. Now, obviously, everyone's childhood is different. There are um, happy childhoods and less happy childhoods, but the sort of evolution of, of, of development of, of, of stages of, um, uh, that, you, that we all go through um, between sort of 18 months and, and five years when our brains are developing and our, um, our, our, our humanness is um, evolving, 
they're, they're critical. And, and, and so I, what I tapped into was um, the amazing opportunities that we have at that age to really develop in my book, I talk about nine skills that, that we we learned over that period, but um, many more as well, that, um, that gives us this imagination and free thinking and self-confidence of our place in the world and a questioning, asking why, and sort of uh, a curiosity and a bravery uh, and an uncynicism that, that, that we looked at the outside world as we tried to absorb it, that we lose as um, uh, we, we grow older, and that's either through parenting, through our schooling system, through our corporate system, some things for very good reasons, and we, we um, survive because of that, but some things not because of a good reason, um, and they knock out the idea of um, you know, imagination and, 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 and failure. Um, so you know, the book is really around trying to unlock our personal potential, not by learning new stuff, but by rediscovering old things that we once did and, and having that opportunity to grow down two minutes a day and look through those eyes that we all want to look, look through and see if we can change our confidence or our view on creativity or our persistence and determination, our collaborations, and our communications and our playfulness, all things like that. Um, and, and, and just it's relevant to the question that I was just talking, I was answering a second ago, um, you know, about failure. You know, every one of us has got the privilege to walk, didn't decide to walk. We fell over 500 times. And each time we just adjusted something so that 499th time we got it all right. And, you know, if we prepare to do that as we learn to walk or ride a bike or swim, um, why don't we do that in other aspects of our lives when we're adults, when it's seen as a failure and embarrassing and, and shameful to fail at something? Um, we should embrace it as long as we know how to learn and adapt and move forward. And if we did that more in um, non-entrepreneurial businesses, in our public policy and discord, um, then I think we'd find quicker the solutions to some of the uh, global challenges that we have. So that's part, in a way, of your answer to my earlier question, which is culturally uh, adopting some of this courageous, persistent uh, approach of a toddler would represent a solution to some of what's not working in aspects of the economy. Absolutely. Spot on. And, yeah. um, but Paul, you know, we're, we're, we're unconscious of time and I want you to talk a little bit more about uh, this idea of the, the focus that you're still placing on another aspect of, of youth and childhood, which is the role that today's children are going to play in tomorrow's society and tomorrow's economy and why that is so important to you and why you kind of look at aspects of how we function as a society and conclude that it's not child centric enough can you can you tell us a little bit about that sure thank you um well i'm i'm writing uh, a book at the moment that um really poses this sort of question it's if we want the brightest possible future for, for this country how do we do that and how, I contend that if we, if we want that brightest possible future, we need to ensure that every child has every opportunity to become the person that they have the potential to be, to thrive. Um, and I, I base that on the, the idea that, you know, we live in an increasingly volatile and complex, this sort of ambiguous world where it's just uncertain, the future is uncertain, and it's the kind of pace of uncertainty is increasing. 
as we're seeing some of the awful news at the moment in the last two or three years. Um, and if, we, if we're going to face that, that future is coming, if we want to face that with hope and with confidence, we need a thriving society to be able to do that. And if you think about it, society is nothing more than what happens when children grow up. The, the, the people that are going to look after me and you and all our listeners in our old age are, are children right now. Um, the people that are going to invent the thing that is going to uh, address the problem that we don't even know is coming um, it, are, are children right now or not born right now. Um, and, and the leaders of our companies and our politics and everything else um, uh, in 20 or 30 years' time will be children today. So if we want a thriving society then, we need thriving children now. And my work is around how do you better make, how do we better make children thrive, um, help them thrive, help them find their purpose is, is, is part of it, um, help them have a, a better voice and more variety and, uh, and their well-being being looked after. But, but if, we, if we don't do that and we, we as a society decide to prioritise some other things, in all honesty, um, over their well-being, whether that's the number of GCSEs that we expect them or want them to achieve over their well-being in terms of uh, their mental health around uh, the pressures over the quantity rather than the quality of their uh, GCSEs. And we do it in our economy with a relentless focus on growing GDP and growing our economy um, at the expense of um, the uh, well-being of the planet, the well-being of our people, um, and, um, you know, the, the types of things, it's, it's quantity again. You know, we could have, um, I'll pick on cigarette companies because they're easy to pick on, I guess, but, you know, GDP grows if all of our cigarette companies triple their GDP, their uh, profits um, in this next year or their turnover. Um, is that good for society? Is that a good thing that we've grown GDP if that's the reason it's grown? Um, we can have all sorts of debates on that, but maybe we should be focusing on the quality of the um, companies that we've got and the output and the innovations and the, the, well, the, the, the ways we improve people's lives through our company's prosperity rather than the overall quantity of it. So, so unless, you know, my book, my contention, and uh, uh, I've got some wonderful essays of contributing our experts in all sorts of areas of, of, of childhood. But the, the idea is that, that it's not just that we ought, we ought to create a society that can produce thriving children because they will become thriving adults. That is part of it. But we ought to be producing thriving children because we ought to be producing thriving children. Um, we can learn from them. We get joy from them. Um, evolution is about adapting to changing environments. It's not about being the, the, the biggest or the fastest, that quantity point again. Uh, it's a bit about being able to adapt best. And unless we um, uh, uh, bring up our children and help our children thrive by adapting to the environment that is going to be this next decade or this next generation, then we aren't going to face the challenges that we don't know are coming um, or can't anticipate um, with, uh, with a confidence and, and, and be as hopeful as we should be. So that's what my book is around. So there's a series of policies, there's a series of ideas uh, that just changes our mindset to think about what is success in this country. Is success the biggest possible economy? Doesn't matter what those companies produce, um, how, they, um, uh, how in sync they are with the environmental people. Um, is that this definition of our success or is it that we can produce happy, confident children who will be uh, thriving adults that will be 
uh, engaged citizens, compassionate and kind people who can produce prosperity that we need to um, make life better for everybody, but also have the social justice and compassion and, and sort of community spirit that we need to do this together uh, to face this volatile and uncertain world. And that's that's what that's the I guess. Of what uh, will come out next year. So I've got all year to write it and, and collaborate with well, others well, on it. I look forward to reading that. Um, and, and I wanted to ask one last question, I guess, which is what you've described there in a way would apply to any generation. But is there a sense that this our, our, our generation, in a way, is perhaps more than in the past, bequeathing a bunch of problems and, and questions for the next generation, which really are quite uh, a big ask in themselves. Yes, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think the heart of what you just said is true. I think that pace of change in, is happening at, at an unprecedented speed, so that the children of, well, not just the children, anyone under about 30 today has lived their life moving from crisis to crisis that they can't control, global you know, kind of macro crises, whether that's, you know, terror um, and the way the world's changed from terrorism, whether that's the global economic um, crisis and the fallout of austerity, none of which they, they control and which the outcomes of which have been hugely unequal, whether that's public health, um, as uh, we can look at COVID, obviously, uh, but mental health um, from a personal point of view as well. Um, whether that's a crisis in our democracy, um, given that we live in a time where um, democracy, the, the, the challenges to, to liberal democracy are different than they were in the 20th century and populism is, is, has come through in various uh, world leaders and um you know, you've had unusual votes, unpredictable votes and things like that. So what, what, there's crisis after crisis after crisis. And the biggest one, I think, is the fact that we have this social justice crisis, which is not necessarily headlined every day, but, you know, the world is more unequal. This country is more unequal in both opportunity and wealth and access um, than, than it has been. And that, I think, is the one thing that our generation you know, and uh, I know we are of a similar age, but you know, your listeners will be all sorts of generations. But 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 people who um, have in the privileged position of um, being leaders in various aspects of society now are bequeathing success and access for some of our children, um, and a lack of that ladder to get to that success for others more than ever before is what I believe. Paul. Thank you so much. I look forward to um, reading your, your book when it appears and perhaps then you might come back and speak to us again. Uh, but until then, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and fascinating talking thank to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share with them, uh, uh, Richard. Uh, much appreciated.